0: Good morning. How are you? We have, uh, we have visitors in from Canada. Make sure, if you know the Cheviers, say hi to them. They're here from, from the, uh, the great north. They're, uh, they share a continent with us, but not a country or a cell plan. Um, we are in the book of Mark, chapter 14, and um, Pastor John will study verses 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord reads like this. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. This is the word of God. Blessed be the word of God.
1: Welcome, and uh, thank you all for being here. Certainly, I am not used to preaching without having done Sunday school class, so it is uh, just an odd day for me, but I was so uh, uplifted by the teaching uh, in the Sunday school class just to hear the Word of God being proclaimed. To hear his sovereignty being proclaimed in the class was great. And uh, certainly, Matthew, when you are in town, you're welcome to come and teach at any time. Uh, It was just uh, fantastic to hear. We do, we have been in deep waters before in the book of Mark. We certainly were in deep waters with regard to the Olivet Discourse that we just finished last week, with regard to the end-time teaching that Jesus gave. We are getting into the critical areas of the book of Mark. As I've said before, a triage gospel, one of those things that is, that seemed, it it just seems in the intensity in which Mark has written this gospel, the urgency of which it goes to the church in Rome, that they need to hear the words that he is saying. I, come to you with humility with these passages that we're getting into. Not that I didn't have it before, but we are certainly when we talk about how close the cross is now, how important it is now, how important it is to get it right. Remember from Peter's discourse, from his sermon on Acts chapter 2, it was this Jesus, the one you crucified. Not any other Jesus, but this Jesus. We always have to keep this Jesus in focus and in front of us. Who Jesus is, what He is doing, truly God, truly man. We have to understand it in those terms. There is only one Jesus that saves. And so we approach these passages, we need to approach them with humility. It is God's Word written to us. We are lucky enough that we have them in translations that we can understand. Translations that are true to the original documents that we have. When we finished last week, Jesus had said to them to be on the alert. And I think we could take that into these passages we hear now that we should continue to be on the alert to see what is happening and why it's happening. Uh, what you will not find, just a little housekeeping as we get into it, what is not on the list of scriptures is Exodus chapter 12. We will be in that for a period of time. It'll be a great time to open up your Bibles and to uh, to follow me along in there. There was just too much to put up on the screen. I just mean that in the terms that we will be jumping Around in that book of Exodus, chapter 12, just to get the flavor for what is happening here. We come into Mark chapter 14, verse 1, that it says, It's now the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, which were two days away. This is this writing is occurring concurrently with the the with the teaching that Jesus has just given them about the end times. This is the other side of the story. This is from the side of the opposition is what we're going to hear. Those that are opposed to Jesus, those who we find out quickly that want Jesus dead, it's not a surprise. We've heard it many times before. Three times in the book of Mark, we hear about their desire to have Jesus dead. But before we get there, we need to understand a bit about the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This is Wednesday night. The Passover will be on in the Jewish calendar, calendar on the 14th of Nisan is what it's going to be. Two days from now. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is mentioned there, will be on the 15th of Nisan. Now we need to stop here because the Jewish holidays are, are, and the Jewish days are understood differently than our days are their holidays or their days will run from sundown to sundown. So it isn't like Tuesday that starts at 12 a.m. and runs to 12 p.m. Theirs would be from whatever sundown is on that day to sundown the next day or sunset the next day is what it looks like. So what you find when you find the feast of the Passover and that of the unleavened bread is that they are overlapping when they occur, and it's important, and we'll get into that later on. So the Passover begins on the 14th at sundown, and it will run to the 14th on sundown, and then immediately at sundown it becomes the 15th. So you start preparing for the Passover on the 14th at sundown, And then you will start preparing for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread on that afternoon of the 14th, and it will begin on the 15th. So there's this overlapping time that we have to keep in mind when we do this. The Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, founded by God in the Old Testament, given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. If we turn to Exodus chapter 12, we'll read... A few verses, it's the final plague that is given. We're pretty probably pretty much all familiar with what that is. It's the the plague that will affect the firstborn in Egypt. It says in verse one of chapter twelve, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of the months for you. It shall be it is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. I'm going to skip to verse 5, and it says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it, in verse 6, until the fourteenth day. This is what would be referred to as the first lamb selection day. Keep that in mind. We're going to hear it again. They have selected this unblemished male, right? No blind goats or lambs. No lame goats or lambs. No ones with any defect or limping goats or lambs. No broken bones of these goats or lambs. The idea is that they are going to be the best of the flock that they have. They're going to take that lamb, and that lamb most likely is going to come into their household for four days. This is what it looks like. They're going to select that lamb. They're going to go out, and because of who God is, they're going to select this best quality of this first year lamb or goat, and they're going to bring it into their house for four days. Now, from here on out, I'm just going to refer to it as a lamb rather than going back and forth goat and lamb. And then on that 14th day, four days later, what does it say in verse 6 then? It says, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So this lamb, this first-year lamb, unblemished, perfect, spotless, no lazy eyes, no ears drooping over, the one that has lived in their household for four days is then to be slaughtered. They cared for it for that period of time, and now we're going to take it and we're going to kill that lamb. In verse 7, it tells us then they are going to take that lamb and they're going to put the blood of it on the two doorposts, so either side of the door, and the lintel that goes over top. This is going to be the symbol of the first Passover. This is going to be a shadow of the cross to come. This is going to be a shadow of the salvation that is to come. The Old Testament, all shadows of what is going to be consummated in the person and being of Jesus Christ. It says there in 8 that they shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread. Not raw or boiled, but eaten with unleavened bread. If you jump down to verse 14, it will say this. Now this will be the day of a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as the feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. What is he talking about? What does it matter about the leaven and bread? What does it matter about having the yeast in the bread? Remember, these are shadows of things that are to come. He, God is teaching the Israelites about him and what is going to happen through the things that they're doing here. The first thing they did is they took a lamb, the best of their flock, a year old, They've kept it with them. They've cared for it. Then they've killed it and put the blood on the lentils. Now he's saying, take all the yeast. Not only take the yeast and don't use it in the bread, but take it out of the household. I'm going to tell you that it's a symbol of sin and iniquity in the nation of Israel. You are to remove this thing. Remember, we have these ideas that we see in the the New Testament. Jesus' teaching where he says that this yeast, right, you've got to get rid of the bad yeast because it infects the whole lump. Where is that coming from? It's coming from back here. This idea of taking out the yeast, the leaven from the household. You're removing this. This is a symbol of the removing of sin and iniquity from not only the households of Israel, but the nation of Israel. We have killed the lamb. We have slaughtered the lamb. This lamb that has walked around our household for the past three days. And don't get me wrong, they're cute. Right? Right? We've taken this lamb, this one that we've cared for, this one that was the best of the flock, we've killed it, we put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, and then we've eaten it, and we're eating it with the unleavened bread, we've taken out the leaven, we've taken out the yeast as a symbol of removing sin and iniquity from the nation of Israel, from our households. All because God is going to do something that is incredibly amazing here but will be the most amazing miracle that we are going to see in weeks in the book of Mark. All shadows of what God is doing to redeem all those he chooses to from Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion. This action that is occurring here will be a feast and a festival, both of them, for all their generations, it tells us. All these things up until this point when it's consummated through what Jesus does on the cross. When we read this story about what happens then on this first of all Passovers, it tells us that the blood of the slaughtered lamb is the symbol to the angel of death, to the to God moving through the land. Right, it's very dark at the very dark at midnight. It says when He moves through the land, it's the symbol to pass over that house and not kill the firstborn. It says in verse twenty-three, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. It says then in verse 29, or 28, it says, The the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They slaughtered the lamb, they took the leaven out of the household. Verse 29, now came about midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 30, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So now when the Israelites, when the Jews celebrate this festival, it is looking back to how God has saved them. It is looking back to them as being the seed of Abraham who He has chosen to save. Remember how God says to Abraham, your, your offspring will be like the stars in heaven or the sand on the seashore if you could count it but they will be in slavery for 400 years until I save them from this. And this is all shadows of what God is going to do through His Son. We can't miss that in this. This Passover isn't the important Passover. What is going to occur in days from now is the true Passover. This is merely a shadow of what God is going to do. And guess what? It has been that way since before the creation of the world. This isn't a surprise. This is God working to do what God has chosen to do. God knows the end from the beginning. He ordains the end by the means in which He chooses to. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 5 and 6 that this festival of the Passover changes from the point of being held individually in households to be a national festival. If we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 5 and 6, we find these words. And I certainly do appreciate your patience with these long verses that we're talking about here. It says in verse 5, it says, You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that came about, at the time that you came out of Egypt. So we remember back in Exodus that as soon as the firstborn are dead, the people beg for them to leave. The, the Hebrews actually take gold from them when they leave. They want them gone. They're out of the land. It says that when they leave, they take their bread without the leaven in it, just covered up. It said earlier that when they were to eat the lamb, they were to eat it fully dressed because they would be leaving quickly. All symbols of what God is going to do, the amazing things that God is going to do here. So it's important to know then in verse 14 of Mark that now the Passover in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was two days away. Think about how important it is for Mark to say that. Think about how important it is that Mark is telling a bunch of Gentile believers in Rome about the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Think about why it's important for them to know the exact time when this is occurring. The exact time when it says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. In Jerusalem at this time, some of the reports, if you were to read Josephus and whatnot, you would find that they, he would claim that because the, the Passover is celebrated at one location, this would be at the temple in Jerusalem, that there may be even upwards of three million Jews in the town of Jerusalem. That's probably a little bit on the high side. A lot of historians would say there's between between one and two million that have come into the region of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If we do the calculations for the slaughtering of lambs that will occur for that, it is a shocking number that will be killed for this Passover celebration. These lambs will be slaughtered not when the Passover begins on sundown, but they're going to be slaughtered on the afternoon at the very end of the Passover, right before the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. On that afternoon, they the priests will start slaughtering all those lambs is when it's going to happen. Two days. So Wednesday night, we're now into Friday. Is when that's going to occur, when all those lambs are going to be brought forward. We know that the plot to kill Jesus. We have it in Mark three six, Mark eleven eighteen, Mark twelve twelve. We know that Annas, who was the previous, who was a former high priest, who is the brother-in-law of or excuse me, father-in-law of Caiaphas is one of the driving factors that's here. And you say to yourself, well, why why would Annas be interested in it? Because it is twice now that Jesus has upset what is referred to as Annas's bazaar in the temple. Where Annas's bazaar is where the money changers were at, where the selling of the sacrifices would go on, where he would profit from those things. Twice Jesus has upset the apple cart in there. This Jesus, to them, is a troublemaker. This Jesus is one that they want dead. He needs to be gone. They don't like the fact that he has authority that they don't have. We find that in the very beginning of Mark's triage gospel, that he teaches as one of authority that they've never experienced before. They don't like the fact that people are following him around for the healings and listening to his teachings. They certainly don't like the fact of the conviction of the teaching that he has given them. To a degree, perhaps, as men tend to do when they're faced with somebody of greater authority than them, they perhaps feel inadequate. They've tried to trap him before and have been unsuccessful, wholly unsuccessful. It doesn't help for the fact that they that in, in this region of Jerusalem right now, there would be a lot of Galileans that are there. They're worried that if they were to do something, hence the reason by stealth, that these people may rise up. They might create an insurrection. They certainly don't want that. They don't want trouble for Rome. That's why they say they're seeking how to not only arrest him, but also to kill him by stealth so that the people don't know. They probably have in their minds that we just want to arrest him since he's here now, he, because he's causing problems. We want to arrest him, set him aside, lock him up someplace, and then when all the people leave after these feasts, then we'll kill him. That's their plan. We know it doesn't work out the way they want it to. I want you to think about the story of Lazarus, how deep their hatred goes for Jesus. Turn to John chapter 11, if you would please. We'll be at the end of the story of the raising of Lazarus. I can't help but talk about Lazarus to this degree. I always like to put this in here. Why does Jesus cry? Or why does Jesus weep when he sees the people upset over Lazarus' death? It certainly isn't because Lazarus is dead. He's already told them that for three, he's told them three times that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So it has nothing to do with Lazarus being dead. What it has to do is seeing the pain that sin causes in the life of his, crea- his creation. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem that Jesus is going to handle. Sin is the problem, a shadow here of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the power of God demonstrated. We see in chapter 11, verse 45, because of, well, we'll start in 44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. I'm always shocked by that passage. If you read it closely, doesn't indicate he's shuffling his feet. And in the grave clothes, they're bound pretty tight. They want to keep the rig of mortis from setting in, and that. It says he came forth bound hand and foot. I don't know what the people were seeing, but I'm certain it's amazing. With wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. What does it say in verse 45? Because of this, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. This certainly can't be a bad thing, right? He has raised Lazarus from the dead. The King James Version, sometimes known as the authorized, would say that he has been in the tomb four days. He stinketh is what it says. The idea in Jewish teaching is the fact that after three days, the soul has left the area around the body. There is no chance for any miracle after after three days. Yet here it is. Jesus has called to this dead man, He has called a dead man, and the dead man has risen from the dead. They have taken the grave clothes off of Him. And it says that many believed. They believed in who Jesus was, but what does verse 46 say? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus has done. Verse 47 Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. (laughs) They have just, a dead man has been risen again like nothing they've ever seen. And their first thought is A, of themselves. Their first thought is A, of their place in society and how it will be overthrown. As an aside here, this is an issue we run into today. I'm going to just say it like this. My choices are believing in Jesus and maybe being ostracized by the world around me or not believing in Jesus and going to hell. A lot of people are going to choose hell over Jesus. We should not let them do that willingly. We should grab at their ankles and their elbows and hold them back and tell them what the problem is of their state. But I digress. These people have seen a dead man risen that should never have come from the ground or come from the tomb again. And the first thought is, we can't have this. This is ridiculous. In fact, not only are they going to plot to kill Jesus, they're going to plot to kill Lazarus too. This truly shows the heart and evilness that is in the heart of man. The evilness that resides in all of us. Right here. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, okay, that is the son-in-law of Annas, the high priest. Uh, the, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, who is the son-in-law of a previous high priest, that is Annas, who controls a lot of power, has a lot of control in this political body, right? Who was high priest this year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, here's our key text here, 51. Now, he did not say this of his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, number one, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. This is the hatred that they have for Jesus. That they must kill him. That he can't be let to go on the way he is. Verse 2. Mark chapter 14, verse 2. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So we have the bookend of the, the end idea of why they have to do it by sell, stealth. They have to do it in secrecy. They, they have to do it so the people don't see what's happening. If we could just arrest him and throw him in a cell somewhere, then we'll take care of this guy. Then we'll assassinate him. Then we'll slaughter him. And all our problems will be solved. We can go back to living the way we did. We can set up the bazaar again. We can have our profit making center in the temple. Everything will be good to go. The Romans will be happy. We'll be happy. Everybody will be happy. Jesus will be dead. That's the idea here. They don't want an insurrection from the Romans. They're worried about the population that is there that might hear about what's going on if they kill him. But if we just keep him arrested, we keep him silent, then we'll be good to go. All by stealth. Now, interestingly enough, let's think about what we know so far. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a specific day. That specific day coincides with Lamb Selection Day for the Passover. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem triumphally, into town, into the praise of the people, the the people that wrongly are thinking that he's going to be the conquering king that they want, not the conquering king that they need. They think he's a conquering king coming in to conquer the Romans. He's a conquering king coming in to conquer sin. What the problem is, he arrives in Jerusalem on the same day that the people are selecting the lambs that they are going to slaughter four days later. Or excuse me, at the end of the week. Okay? He comes in at that time. He is in that place, in that selection. He is with the people during that period of time. Jesus knows when the crucifixion is going to be. But the priests and the scribes who are plotting this don't know that that's what's going to happen. They just want him dead. Their plan, in their minds, looks different than what God's plan actually is here. The true lamb was selected since before the foundations of the earth. If you go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says that the Lamb of God was selected before the foundations of the earth. So in the Trinitarian Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Son had been selected to be the Lamb of God for this specific time, in this specific place, in this specific century, in this specific town, at this specific time. Nothing by accident in God's plans. But we have to keep in mind that it's fully, these people that are plotting the death of Jesus are fully doing it under their own volition. And as Matt so aptly said today in the class, I had to write it down, I just loved it, we can ponder what that, how that works in God's ways for all of eternity, but we shouldn't get wrapped around the axle about things we don't fully understand how God works in there. But this is what God is doing. Jesus is not only that lamb. Jesus is also the high priest that will be administering the sacrifice itself. Remember how Jesus taught with authority. Remember how he healed withered hands and blindness of people. Remember how He demonstrated that He was the God-Man. And remember the sea. Remember how He was asleep on the cushions when the sea was raging. That sailors that were fishermen, sailors that were familiar with the storm's Of that sea were terrified by what was happening. And they say we lose a little bit of the flavor in our English translations of it. Don't you care that we are in the process of perishing right now? What does Jesus do? He gets up, he calms the sea, the wind stops, and the waves end. It's like glass. Their first result is not to fall on their knees to worship Jesus. Their first result is they are terrified. What type of man is this that can control these things? This is the Jesus that is coming That is coming to Jerusalem. This is the Jesus who is the true Lamb of God, that is the true sacrifice, that is the only one necessary, that is the only one for all time and forever to come and complete that shadow that God set forth way back in the first Passover. Don't you care that we are in the process of perishing? Yes, He does care, because He goes to the cross, not because the Pharisees desire it, not because Pilate desires it, but because He allows it to happen. This is the Jesus, the true Lamb of God. Not a Lamb like the one that is selected, that is drugged into the slaughtering place, but the one who stops Peter from stopping it, and says, no, this is my lot. I have always been going to the cross. I have always been on that road to the cross. From eternity, it has been ordained from my Father that I willingly go to that cross. We cannot miss that. We cannot miss who He is, both the priest and the sacrifice, at this period of time. The Passover, the original Passover pointed to what God would be doing in the great salvation that He ordains at this period of time. This Jesus, this One, the One that we talked about weeks ago that Daniel prophesied in, verse, in chapter 9 of, chapter 9, verse 26 of his book, of his prophecies, that this would occur at this specific time. We can't miss what is going on here. We can't miss the importance of Mark saying, now the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is two days away. This is God at work. God God demonstrated in what is being done here. What is being done bringing the true Lamb to the place of the slaughter. The true Lamb to the mercy seat. The true Lamb of God that does care that we are in the process of perishing because of our sins. This is the true Lamb of God. Not a one-year-old without blemish that's a goat or lamb. But the true Lamb of God that has been selected by God in the Trinitarian Union by God. This The Son has been selected to do this thing which no one else or no other thing could do. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> what does Paul say? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be, may, be a new lump. Stop right there. What does Jesus do? Jesus gives us a new heart. He cleans out that old evilness and hatefulness that is in our hardened stone hearts. Just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul links both the Feast of the unleavened bread and the Passover to the work that Christ is going to do on the cross in a few short days. This Jesus, this is the one, as Peter says. In fact, we're going to look there since we're close. Go to Acts chapter 2. Why talk about it when we could see it? Don't believe me because I'm saying it. Don't listen to me with an open mind. Listen to me with an open Bible. And look. Look at verse Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32. <clears throat> this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised He has poured forth this which you both see and hear, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And when a person, and there's many in this room can testify to, when they first hear the gospel for the first time, They can testify to that verse in 37 where it says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were cut to their heart. That their heart of stone that was closed off to the Gospel becomes a heart of flesh and they can feel it. They know something has changed because God has done that work in them. God has done that work through Christ Jesus. The One who will go to that cross in two days. The one who was selected on what will be, for those who believe in him, the last lamb selection day. The one who was always going to the cross. Obviously, we can, and we will later on, as we get through Mark, talk through in more detail about the cross and those events that occur around there. But it was so necessary to see the correlation here and why he mentions the Passover and the unleavened bread to give some background on what's going on in these two short verses, what we see is God's sovereignty on display in everything that is occurring. Nothing lost here. Nothing by accident. Don't misunderstand me. The men that are plotting His death are doing exactly what they want to do. They are not being coerced into doing anything they don't want to do. They are doing exactly what they want to do. When they plot to kill Jesus when they call out for the for to release barabbas when they call out crucify him they are doing exactly what their wicked hearts desire they are not veering from the course but god knows the end from the beginning he ordains not only the end but the means and how it's gotten there all found in his great plan that he would save the elect and be glorified in doing so we when we read these when we read this account, we should find great comfort in these passages. Let's think about what we know and what the church in Rome knew too. The same Jesus that cast out demons, cured withered hands, taught amongst them, miraculous feedings, miraculous healings, calmed the sea, that cared that they were perishing, the cares that were perishing, That this Jesus will be crucified, not because of the plans of men, but because of the plans of God. It is not by accident that Jesus just happened to curse the fig tree. It is not by accident that Jesus foretold the fall of Jerusalem. It is not coincidence that Jesus gave a great teaching of all they needed to know about the end times. It's not by accident that Jesus happens to be in Jerusalem for the third Passover during His ministry. We should have great confidence in our Savior, and even though our sins are great, we have an even greater Savior. We should look to this witness and see how God has brought together His great plan of salvation. Frankly, as we grow in our faith and we study the scriptures, I think we can all attest to the fact that, as it says in First uh, Peter one nine, that I think we become more and more like those angels who look with wonder in what is being is what is happening by God's plan. When we think about this and we dwell upon the work of Christ, we should come to realize the firm foundations of our salvation. That we are not built on sand, but we are built on the most solid rock. On the bedrock that extends into eternity. The firm grip that he has on our lives. Think about this. When God birthed creation, he knew that Adam and Eve would sin and that Jesus would go to the cross. When God confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, he knew that Jesus would go to the cross. When he chose Adam or Abraham as the father of the nations, he knew that Jesus would go to the cross. When the Israelites would be in slavery for 400 years, he knew that Jesus would go to the cross. When they celebrated the first Passover, he knew that it was a shadow of Jesus going to the cross. The Trinity always knew that the Son would be the Passover Lamb, the last and final and perfect One. We worship this sovereign, triune God who will bring about our salvation and the salvation of all that He has chosen in His Son. Jesus is the High Priest who enters into the Holy of Holies, not on this earth, but in the heavenly realms. Remember, the tabernacle is just that thing that is a shadow of the true tabernacle that is in heaven. That is where Jesus' blood is sprinkled from the cross. That is where the one where it is before the righteous and holy God that we worship. That is the true tabernacle where His blood is. It is demonstrated and purchases our salvation at a cost that we cannot understand. He, Jesus, offers Himself as a Lamb without defect, without sin, in our stead, as both propitiation and expiation of our sins. He, as the priest, places His blood in that place for us. We know it was accepted because He rose on that third day when we think about this road to the cross from eternity past the Son, truly God and truly man, never missing a millennium, never missing a decade, never missing a year, never missing a month, never missing a week, never missing a day, never missing an hour, never missing a minute, never missing a second on the way to the cross. This is our High Priest who does it all once and forever. It is no wonder that the most common symbol you see of Christ, dead Christians in the Roman catacombs is not a cross on their tombs. It's an anchor. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This is probably one of my favorite passages. This, this is just... <coughs> We're going to leave on this one. I'm going to say this passage and then we're going to go into prayer. But I want you to consider the words that are said here about Jesus. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast in one which enters within the veil. That is our Jesus. Let us all pray. Father God, thank you uh, for this amazing day. Thank you for the this scripture that continues to enlighten and enliven us. Keep us in it uh, at all times possible. Keep us wondering about those things that you have done to bring about salvation. Please be with all those who are here today and those who are online, who are joining us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you, uh, if you would stand and join us.